everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Relative Pitch. Today, I have the great pleasure of bringing on my professor, Dr. Lauren Kerr, Assistant Professor of Ethnomusicology and Musicology at Western Michigan University. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are you? I'm, I'm good. I... <laughs> There's you know, about that. it's we are like what 18 months into a pandemic and i'm going to tell you all i'm happy to be here but in general if i never have to do another zoom again for the rest of my life it'll be too soon <laughs> that's how i'm feeling looking at a screen all day is not the move <laughs> I feel like we're at that, are we like mid-semester or close to mid-semester at this point? Uh, where... No, who said no, that? No. We have midterms next week. Yeah. We're a third of the way into the semester. And for public education, no, we haven't even hit 45 days of school yet out of 180. So, no. I'm just trying to be positive. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just trying to get- I through. try to be positive too. Oh, <laughs> no. positive note, we want to bring up that the Met uh, performed its first opera written by a African-American composer, and that was Terrence Blanchard. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, also a trumpet player, so you know it has to be good because it's a trumpet player. <laughs> Can we, like, first of all, yes, let's acknowledge the fact that this happened, and it's amazing, and the representation we saw on the stage and the representation we saw in the audience. Listen, we were showing up. Our people were coming for this, and it was it was amazing from the reviews I've heard and from what people have been saying. But we, at the same time, let's also acknowledge that this is the first time we were seeing an African-American composer on stage at the Met. That in itself is something to, to kind of think about. It's 2021. Why, why has this happened? Or, or, you know, do we not have black composers who are, you know, who are writing operas like, or were the people not ready for it is a real question. That's the question. <laughs> um, one, of, one of the things that I think was kind of exciting about this, though, is that I think the Met realized that this was also an opportunity to sort of expand beyond their usual reach. Um, so there is going to be a, a live simulcast of this opera um, in the theaters, but they also were doing events with the Schoenberg Center in Harlem and live streaming. And I think they did a live stream into Harlem at one point, which is, um, I think, really interesting to talk about, like, if we want to think about what opera's reach is <laughs> in 2021 and what it could be. Yeah, and for anyone who doesn't know, it's called Fire Shut Up In My Bones, if you want to go uh, look it up and look at the synopsis and everything. Um, but yeah, I think this is a way of taking it and putting it out to the people. And I think we've talked about this a lot, about exactly like who who are supposed to occupy these spaces um, that these specific types of music are, you know, are performed in. Um, and I think that goes a little bit into the musicology, ethnomusicology and the work that you do. So just tell us, like, give us some background on yourself and like, tell us how like you got to Western Michigan. <laughs> how much time do we have? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, like I was telling you before, uh, before this, I actually started as a flute performance major. And so my background formally is I'm a classically trained musician. 
Um, I did grow up in a household, though, where I was mostly surrounded by popular music, and I didn't know until I was in college that, like, you can talk about popular music in an academic setting, like, no one had told me that before. <laughs> so once I realized that, um, you know, I, I really liked performing, but I felt like the the path to being an orchestral musician it was so much of the same repertoire by the same handful of composers. And, you know, things have changed a lot since then in a really good way. But at the time, it just felt like I, that's not really what I wanted to pursue. Um, and at the same time, I was kind of getting into uh, women gender studies and thinking about the relationships between social justice issues and music and thinking about how I could talk about those issues through popular music is what led me to take a more academic path to, to my graduate work. So I did a, my graduate, uh, my master's degree is in ethnomusicology. Um, and my, my field work at that time was largely around uh, women's music, which is uh, women um, music for like, uh, started in the 1970s around lesbian communities. Um, there were a lot of, you know, festivals, sort of lesbian spaces dedicated to creating a women's culture. And music was very much a part of that. So I was interested in that from a sort of historical perspective, but also how it had changed into the 21st century, like what genres were being represented, what types of women were being represented. Um, and it was actually through women's music that I started to get into a study of hip hop and what is the role of LGBTQ artists in hip hop and why haven't we really put a lot of focus um, onto that. So after doing my master's, I took a year off and I did my PhD in musicology. And I will say that through this whole process, I never had any coursework in popular music. <laughs> I didn't have any coursework in, um, I mean, I did a graduate certificate in women and gender studies, but at an institute connected to my university, not actually in the music school that I was in. So, you know, you do this, you kind of piece together the resources that you need from different places to make the path that you want in order to talk about the things that are meaningful to you. Um, and so that's kind of what I did. I graduated. I got very lucky and got a tenure track position immediately um, in Virginia, was there for two years, and then took the job here at Western, so. And I, you know, you just said something really big uh, about popular music. To me, I don't think it is, it is respected in the classical music arena. Um, the fact that you went through all of your you know, degrees and there was not one popular music class that you could take. Um, and I think that kind of lends itself to why classical music is, some may say is a dying art because it's not connecting with the communities, these marginalized communities or communities that are just like, that's, that's you know, hoity-toity stuff, that is above us. That, that does not resonate with, you know, who we are. I mean, growing up as, you know, a black young boy, saying, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be in choir, I'm going to be in bands and, you know, classical music. Everyone is like, what? What is, like, what is that? And then, you know, actually getting to college, there is nothing about anything that I grew up listening to. There was no hip hop class. There was no R&B class. There were no, we had gospel choir, but that was it. Like, that's as far as, you know, classical music can digest, I guess. So I'm so glad that you were changing 
that field and really changing the way we teach the next generation. Um, so can you explain some of those, those hardships you've had to kind of um, go through to now get that class and get it started up for the next people to learn? Yeah, I think having um, a sort of interdisciplinary background, I try to take that, um, you know, what I put together and, you know, and when I say this, I don't mean to say that I didn't have mentors. I had very caring mentors along the way that helped direct me. I just mean that the structures were not set up to do the right. kind of work I wanted to do. Um, and I, my goal when I think about when I'm putting together a new class or what I cover in my class is I try to bring in um, all these different aspects of, you know, my background or things I think might resonate with students and sh like put them side to side, like on even footing, right? Like, like all these things are important to talk about. Um, last year I taught, I was able to offer a new class, um, a graduate seminar, Black Music in the U.S., and I told my students, I said, this is a class that I wish that I had had when I was going through school. Like that was my impetus for putting it together and offering it. And, you know, most of my students are also in, um, you know, like Michael in the classical world, right? So obviously I want it to be meaningful for you all. But I also want to point out that these things are much more connected than how we've been sort of trained to talk about them so far. So I'm really interested in making those connections, um, you know, showing how they influence each other and sort of the shared social historical context in which music's being made and performed and listened to. So, yeah, go ahead. And that comes to a great point that we're talking about, like there's this whole talk about classical music and about how orchestras have released all these statements and they still haven't changed. and we still do Beethoven four nights in a row and all this other stuff. And it's like, people are calling to like cancel Beethoven or cancel all this stuff. I'm like, we don't have to cancel it. We just have to and in both, but before and in both come respect has to be given to both parties. And it feel like we've always had, it's like you always respect your older brother, but he's always going to pick on you over here. And that's like classical music with like popular culture music because like, oh, this is for the mass media, blah, blah, blah. Well, they cover a lot more important topics in today's world than some of the classical music. And they resonate with everyone. And that's why it's still living. So it's like, how can we go into these communities with our classical music, but also take a turn on it and show and like, not educate, but like combine the love of two for us and for the audience members that are not like who don't want to go to a concert hall who feel like they don't um respond well in a concert hall because you have to be quiet you have to sit here and then an intermission <laughs> everybody coughs their lungs out and then you go back for a second half so it's like how can we do that and i think it's where raising raising awareness in these classes for us the next generation of musicians and educators yeah, and you brought up a lot of interesting points about, I mean, first of all, I don't know anybody's trying to cancel Beethoven. <laughs> I think we just need maybe a little less Beethoven <laughs> <laughs> is my feeling. Um, but, you know, like when I was in, when I was playing in orchestras, it was like every cycle there had to be some Beethoven, there had to be some Strauss. And I was like, I love this stuff, but there's so many other things that we're not making space for by continuing to focus on the same things. And those things are not gonna go away. It's just that there's so many things we're missing out on when you only program those things. Um, 
that so that's you know let's just put that to rest also like you know if you have a beethoven 250th anniversary and then you got to have a beethoven 251st anniversary i'm just saying like <laughs> as someone who i i you know uh went to a beethoven festival concert last night um which was just three nights of straight beethoven by the way um it was hard to digest for a lot of different reasons but the main thing is i was thinking is everyone okay with this and that's what scared me more than anything was that it was just kind of and then i kind of just looked about the sea of people who are specifically there and i was like yeah in about mm, 10 15 years his audience won't be here like just just to be honest and and i've i've said this so many times like whenever we talk about like uh pushing forward and social change within music it's always like oh well like the the audience this we want to hear this i'm like the audience isn't forever like these are unfortunately i'm being it's it's hard like harsh to say but it's very true like we are the audience of tomorrow you know so what we want to hear is what we want represented on stage so these institutions who are still holding this very old standard up uh, it's going to go away soon. And like, I don't know if you uh, saw the articles, I think it was around September 20th, but the violinist uh, Nigel Kennedy, when he was going to do a concert at Royal uh, Albert Hall, he wanted to do a Jimi Hendrix tribute. There was a youth orchestra that was made up of all black musicians. And like, he wanted to do this, uh, po this popular music tribute, which is like, yeah, Jimi Hendrix is really important for American music. So why not? And then classical FM said, yeah, nah. Instead, you can do Vivaldi's Four Seasons. They said that. They specifically said that piece too. And Nigel Kennedy quit. <laughs> he said, I'm not doing the concert. Like, this is, that's insane. And he called them a Jurassic FM, actually, whenever he was doing an interview about it. But it shows, like, the, there, and he, he said culturally prejudiced. He said musical segregation. He was using words. Like, he was very, I think he was shocked that still now 2021 like they would suggest like oh that's just not we don't think the audience is really going to go for that we're going to go and it's it's still i mean i'm not surprised but i think the fact that there are people who are trying to push for popular music to become more integrated within like orchestras and to get more diversity within orchestras like there are people who are trying and we see them um, but it's the institutions. That's the biggest thing that I think people are forgetting. Like it's the structures and the systems that are in place that are for the most part, keeping like these things from happening. Um, and one of the questions I had was like, are you like, have you seen your fields like FM musicology, uh, musicology specifically, um, shift during your education and what do you think still needs to be done? Cause obviously there is a lot that still needs to be done. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel like actually I have seen a lot of change, um, in terms of how popular music gets situated in, um, in those disciplines. Um, when I was first starting, it was really hard to find, um, like when you go to the big major conferences of the American Musicological Society or Society for Ethnomusicology, it was hard to find um, papers being accepted and programmed and presented on popular music topics. And I think due to the work of, you know, we just have a... Um, as you have newer scholars coming out who are doing that work and doing a really like doing great work, like you can't deny <laughs> that it's, you know, qualified to be presented on, in these same stages, right? I shouldn't say stages, these same conference rooms, <laughs> whatever. Um, 
but it's also the work of people who are like-minded, you know, getting together into like um, study groups or special interest groups and really pushing like, hey, there's a critical mass, there's an interest for this. There's, you know, developing networks of people interested in these topics. Um, one thing I'll say is that the process sometimes through which popular music studies gets legitimized can in some cases reinforce some of the same hierarchies that we see in classical music it just gets reinscribed onto this you know other other genres so you know for example some of the fir first folks in musicology to contribute to popular music studies were working on you know groups like the beatles and making musical theoretical arguments that would pull from the frameworks used in classical music studies and kind of making the argument of hey this music is also interesting because we can use these same tools because we can do these same kinds of analyses and i think one of the things that some of us are pushing back against is you know not to to say that that's not a legitimate approach but we need to think about how not just what we study, but how we study it can reinforce some of those inequities, right? Um, there's a lot of conversation in hip hop studies right now. You know, I am a white scholar of black music. A lot of hip hop scholars in musicology are also white or non-black people of color. And we have a lot of conversations about not just who gets sort of the opportunities to present and share their work and the mentorship that they need to be successful, but also like what, what tools are we using when we talk about this music? What frameworks, like, are we coming at it from frameworks that have been used to privilege, you know, white uh, creators and white musicians, or are we actually engaging with frameworks we need to study black music that are originating from black scholars, right? That are being, that are, are, are intentional and in how we're analyzing and discussing some of this music. Because the danger is that if you're trying to legitimize something, you say it's just as good as this for the same reasons. We don't have to do that, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think we have to do that, but I do think we need to be cognizant of this is important. It's important for different reasons and we need different ways to think about it, but it doesn't make it less important than this. It's just different, right? So I think that's sort of a direction that, that we're kind of pushing now. Now that pop music is being taken a little more seriously, <laughs> we're not quite there yet, but we're getting taken more seriously. We have to be really cognizant of what that means and what the responsibility is that comes along with that. Um, I have something um, that you that you said, and it's something that I've noticed as well, that there, there aren't a lot of Black scholars writing on Black music. Um, and in fact, I mean, I can only know a few. Um, do you have any, you know, conclusion to why is it because we're, we're just not in the music field to talk about it. Um, do you have any, you know, hypotheses of why that is? I think that there's actually a lot of Black scholars talking about music. They're just not always doing it in the disciplines of musicology and ethnomusicology. I mm. think that there's what we call a leaky pipeline where people are being pushed out before they get to the point where they're contributing that scholarship. 
um, they're not necessarily getting the support or recognition that they need. And so that's something that we as as people in these disciplines, people in schools of music, which is where, you know, it kind of starts. <laughs> this is where we really need to be focusing our attention to make sure that we're cultivating that, right? Like actively cultivating that. So it's not just, you know, a handful of people that manage to get to that point where they're writing books, but actually thinking about, you know, how, how do we just increase overall um, access, right? So that's what I would say. I say other disciplines, it's different. I think those of us who have music backgrounds have a unique perspective to talk about music, obviously. Um, but we also historically have a really hard time cultivating um, Black scholars. Um, and that's something that we all need to be working on from earlier stages, for sure. And that's definitely something that that's a discussion topic that's been coming up a lot in one of my classes that we have a lot of discuss discussions just like this, um, where it's talked about where now it feels like diversity, equity, inclusion is all becoming like trend words for some people. Like it's like it's it's like a fad to the point where people are just kind of using it to say, oh, yeah, I'm I'm this or now I can I can put this hat on and everything. But then when you when we actually talk about so how do we actually do more of this and it gets to the conversation of more actual representation, meaning more people in the field who with like very different diverse backgrounds. Um, first of all, it's like you don't see as much of that conversation. And then on top of that, then how are those people who are um, people of color and who have more like diverse backgrounds, how are they treated when they're put into those situations and when they're in those institutions? Because I'm, I've seen so many professors who have talked about leaving positions because of the way they were treated. Or they feel like they were brought in to do more of that work. And then they were met with resistance saying, oh, well, we don't really think about it that way. This, this, and this, and this. And so it's what you, I think what you said, I, I can't remember exactly what you said, but basically like um, people basically falling, falling uh, out before they get to this point of being able to like, you know, put out their research and do more research and do like more findings on it. Um, it's because th the systems aren't allowing for them to actually do what they like need to do in terms of research for like the the backgrounds that they actually come from so that's been a whole different it's like not enough to just talk about it but to have the people who that is their culture that is their background like just talking about it in these spaces oh no you can you can go i'll go was, <laughs> yeah there's so much to talk about there one of the things i want to say part of the reason doing that kind of work becomes so challenging is because a lot of it needs to be led by people who are already marginalized, scholars of color, LGBTQ scholars, et cetera, gender diverse scholars. But in asking them to do that, we place an extra burden on top of the work that they're yeah. already doing. Yeah. So, you know, it's like it's like a lose-lose situation in that, you know, yeah, it's like th these are the voices we need to be listening to, but they're straining for us to hear them, right? So th how how do we do that? And I think that there's this needs to be, we need to be all engaged in multifaceted approaches where it's not just one thing here, just focused on representation or just focused on mentorship or what. Like we need to be thinking of it on all levels. I personally, I don't know who's going to be listening to this, but I kind of refuse to do diversity committees anymore because institutions will set up these committees 
and make it seem like that's the work, right? We have this committee, so we've done the work. They don't give the committees any actual power to do anything, to, to make any change. The work that needs to happen is done in every single other committee, right? Mm -hmm. In your hiring, in your curriculum, in your scholarship, this is where that, that work actually is. And the diversity committees are sometimes just kind of a distraction and an, and an energy drain. <laughs> and so I personally kind of hate them, but I think we're not quite ready to get rid of them either, right? Because we're, we're still at that stage where we at least need to have some conversation and that's sometimes a centralized way to sort of have it. So yeah, this is why making changes at an institutional level is really, really hard. Not impossible, but it is really hard. And to talk touch back on a uh, point we said a couple of minutes ago, like not seeing some of these scholars visibly and how they're like straining to go out. Like we at KSU had one of the like Southern hip hop scholars teaching at Kennesaw State University. And I never heard of her until I got to Western Michigan University. That angers me to no end. Like uh, Dr. Regina Bradley, like how she published a book in 2017. And then again, last year or this year and both of them are good books i read the one this year and i don't read so that that's how you know it's a good book for everybody out there i do not read and i read this book cover to cover like period but like the fact that she was at kennesaw and none of the music people knew yep why is that a thing yeah like, so so dr bradley is first of all it's like her book um Chronicling Stankonia dropped in February 2021 because the release date was my birthday. So I felt like that was like especially for me. right? <laughs> but um, just this week, she uh, edited volume called The Outcast Reader that she edited just dropped as well. So definitely shout out to Dr. Bradley's work. She is just the foremost scholar of Southern hip hop at this moment. Um, she's trained in English and African American studies and that those are her home disciplines. Mm -hmm. And this is an issue. Um, it's an issue with hip hop studies, but it's an issue with music studies more generally is I think again, thinking about like the institutionalization of music makes it really challenging to do that sort of interdisciplinary work. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's one of the issues I will say that, um, I have been helping to organize the the popular music section of the Society for Ethnomusicology has a keynote uh, lecture every year at the annual conference. And I organized to get Dr. Bradley to be our speaker for this year. So but that's what you got to do, right? You got to come in and say, here's an opportunity. How can I use that opportunity to make those connections for people and, you know, open things up? So I'm super excited, super excited. Hey. That's the only reason I registered for the conference this year. So I agree. I agree. But yeah, I think, you know, this is an issue of, um, of the way that, and also if you think about the way universities are structured, it's really challenging to do things on other parts of campus, right? And I think that's just something that music schools especially tend to be really less open. Music departments and schools of music tend to be a little less open to the kind of interdisciplinary connections we need. But I, that's another piece of the puzzle, right? When I say multifaceted approach, I think that's also okay. another piece of that puzzle. Yeah. And um, when my freshman year, I took um, 
African-American diaspora studies class. And in that class, we talked about way more Black music than I ever did any time in any music class. Um, when we had open discussions where we talked about some of your topics that you um, had in your dissertation, such as um, the, the changing of guard between Queen Latifah and La Kim, you know, how, you know, Queen Latifah was looked at as more of the righteous, you know, talking about the community um, and everything. And then here's little Kim coming next and she's, you know, the feisty one, you know, the one like that. So we talked, we discussed that in that class. I don't even honestly believe any of my professors know who Queen Latifah or Lookin was or who they are and they're and how regarded they are in the hip hop community. And that's just something that has become the norm. And I'm like, can we change this rhetoric? Because all of this is music. All of this has something to do with the students that are in front of us. And to this day, where we have the Nicki Minaj's, the Cardi B's, and some of the underground artists who kind of falls under that Queen Latifah style of rapping. I think we all need to study that as well. And which brings me to your dissertation that I found very interesting, where you talked about one of the chapters was, you know, uh, Nicki Minaj and, and balancing her femininity and her masculinity. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Well, sure. That was um, a while ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I think I have always found Nicki Minaj to be so fascinating. Like, even when she's out here doing stuff where I'm like, no, what are you doing? I yeah, still love her, re right? The recent things, yes. yes, yeah. yes. Um, but I try to think of that as, you know, one of the things that I'm very invested in in my work is thinking about aspects of hip hop that have been considered on the margins and how maybe they're not as marginalized as we've been led to think that they are and sort of recentering those things, right? So my current project is focused on LGBTQ artists, Black LGBTQ artists, and how, you know, and repositioning um, sort of queerness as more central to hip hop than how maybe we've been talking about it in the last 40 or so years, right? So with Nicki Minaj and other artists, you know, not just LGBTQ artists, thinking about though how they have to contend with the way that we think of a stereotypical rapper or sort of normative rapper identity, right? And we've been taught, um, all of us, I think, through, you know, various media and various conversations to think of rap as very masculine, hyper-masculine, but a particular kind of black masculinity that gets presented and that gets sort of held, upheld, basically, mm -hmm. um, especially through mainstream rap. Because also when we talk about rap, we're talking about a lot of different things, but in terms of what becomes most visible and, and most frequently heard and talked about. So when I think about artists like Nicki Minaj, they have to find a way to um, make themselves legible when they don't align with the expectations, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that she, her strategy, like many artist strategies, shifts over time. So at the time when I was writing that, which was, you know, I, I defended in 2017. So this was, you know, she has changed. She's done things since then. Um, but yeah. one of the things I noted is when she first came out, she was a little bit ambiguous about her sexuality. She kind of let people think maybe she was queer without coming out definitively either way, which is an interesting choice. 
And, you know, kind of makes you like, for me, it raises questions about who does this benefit? Who does this maybe, you know, a race in the conversation? Um, I don't think it's a, a clear black or white, like good or bad thing, right? I think it's just worth thinking about what are the other factors going into this. Um, one of the things I've been talking about with people lately is the way that she doesn't collaborate with other women rappers, right? She... <laughs> <laughs> she'll collaborate with women like you know she has a joint with Beyonce but she doesn't collaborate with other women rappers and one of the things I think is there's so much pressure on women rappers mm -hmm. to find a way to make themselves heard and legible mm -hmm. that it seemed like one of her approaches was like I am the woman rapper right not just the best woman rapper but i'm the woman rapper which didn't really make space for other women i think that strategy is less effective now i'm looking at artists like megan the stallion and cardi b who are much more open and understand um that they can present themselves as part of a collaborative effort not just like the one right <laughs> Um, and so that's what I think about Nicki Minaj is, but I also like, don't hold it against her because the industry is set up in a certain way that you have to make choices, right? And yeah. how you want to situate yourself if you, if you want to have this career. So I'm not like, I'm not mad at her. I'm maybe like disappointed sometimes, but I'm not, you know, going to hold that against her that those are the choices, how she felt she had to navigate it. Yes. And like what you just said, I, I always felt that um, female rappers, have way harder and to me their music is way better and it's because um they have to fight so hard and they have to come out on every stop to be better than their male counterpart um and so to me i would rather listen to me some nikki or megan or cardi rather than your put um rapper name here whoever because to me it's just more refined it's more it's just like yes and what and also a point that you said um i've always called it digestible i whenever i talk about um lgbtq as well um i always just say it's more digestible for the straight audience or it's digestible for whatever audience because it's easy for those people to just say oh you fit in this category fine let's go on to the next i i can in my head, I can digest that and I'm gonna go on. And one of my favorite people in the world, and she has had her shortcomings as well, and I've been a fan since the womb, is Miss Beyonce, which you've done some research as well on her. And I know Miss uh, Beyonce Giselle knows Carter, like the back of my hand. So please talk, talk about that. And you actually had a um, one of your works about Lemonade specifically. And, the kind of selectiveness of queer representation throughout that. So can you talk about that? Yeah, and I want to preface this by saying, like, sometimes as a scholar, you have to say things that are critical and it doesn't mean you don't love it. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Because I feel like I was, like, a little nervous writing that, like, is, is are Beyonce stands, are the, you know, is the Beehive going to be high? But I, I critique out of love, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so part of the reason that, so I think you're referencing my article um, on, uh, on queer resonances in Beyonce's Lemonade. And part of how that article came to be was 
I was doing field work in New Orleans in 2016 on Bounce Music. Um, Bounce in New Orleans has a lot of openly LGBTQ rappers, which is still somewhat unusual for a local scene, right? Um, And so I was there just trying to learn more about Bounce culture and what was happening on the ground in New Orleans. around the same time that Bounce has started to become a little more well-known outside, right? Um, I'm thinking especially about the work of Big Frida. Frida, yes. Big Frida has become like a household name, which I'm so happy about, like, (laughs) and really like, Oh, love her. So, um, but there's a whole a whole bunch of other rappers that don't have as much visibility as her who are, are just as active and involved. Um, and one of the things when I was there is, you know, bounce and bounce music and dancing are like this. I know you can't see this on the podcast, but like intertwined, like inseparable, right? Dance and the music goes hand in hand. So I was really interested in all of these aspects and how they were combining and intersecting and one of the things i was hearing was um you know when the when the the music video for formation came out it was like a surprise drop right i still don't know how beyonce gets away with these surprise drops but she's been doing it since 2013 got on lock like everyone (laughs) so this video drops and you know it's brilliant um facts right that's not even opinion that's just oh absolutely Absolutely. right um and so it sparked a lot of conversation like oh is she is she political now (laughs) like how is this reflective of our current um you know about black lives matter and all the sort of conversations we're having on a national level about social injustices and things like that and it was mostly very positive right um and you know the way she put that together the the folks her team put and her put that together was really it was very powerful but when i was in new orleans one of the things i was hearing is that some of the images and sounds and aesthetics that she draws on in that video are taken from black queer communities in New Orleans in a way that we're not necessarily credited or given compensation, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that Big Frida was sampled on the track and she was paid, she was credited, you know, that she, she opened up the uh, Formation World Tour stop in New Orleans. So, you know, she, she got her flowers, (laughs) but There's also a sample of the late Messi Maya, who's also a bounce artist and comedian. Messi, yeah. Yeah, uh, Messi, Messi for a reason. Yeah, Messi Maya. Maya, love. love. (laughs) But you know, if you're not from New Orleans and you're not familiar with these artists, I think a lot of people didn't realize they were two different artists being sampled. Yes, they didn't know. They yeah, did. they didn't know. And Messi Maya's family, uh, um, his estate, they sued Beyonce because they took that sample without credit, without paying for it. There was no no clearance for that sample. And, the you know, the politics of sampling in hip hop is really tricky because it, it, there's there's really sort of. Um, it raises a lot of questions about ownership of material, but also about like how do you give credit to someone if you're incorporating their work? And then like, when should you be doing that? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the issue with, with uh, the Messi Maya um, situation is that, well, you know, this was a really blatant, like 
it's such an integral part of the song. Mm-hmm. Um, but there wasn't even an acknowledgement that this person who's now deceased was, you know, their voice was being used on there. Right, right. And, and you know, on that, and because I remember I was, I think, in seventh grade when I stumbled upon Messi, my, like the actual video where they took the slice from, I'll never forget, he is walking with purple hair next to a Buick and he's like, you look like a Buick and everything. And that's literally the next sentence is the, the cut that is in the song. And so I remember being in seventh grade all the way back, oh child, a long time ago. Um, I remember seeing that and then cut to formation coming out. And I'm like, that's Messy Maya. Like, who, but no one knows Messy Maya besides me and my little friend group that knew who that was. People thought it was Big Frida. That's right. who they thought it was because Big Frida at that time had already been um, had reality show, uh, probably been on Drag Race at that time, like more of a household name. So most people thought about it. And I was like, no, that's Messy Maya. And then that made me go back and look up Messy Maya. Then I realized he had passed. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I didn't even know that. I remember years ago, this was the video because it was posted on YouTube. And that also gets a little, uh, you know, sketchy of, well, we're sampling a YouTube video and YouTube is public, I guess. I mean, technically, y'all, if y'all didn't know, they could take a relative pitch, splice it up and put it in a song. Hopefully we get it. Hopefully we get paid. But who knows? Like, how do you go past all of that? So definitely a very interesting thing that they had to do. Well, and another thing is in the video, with permission, they used footage from a documentary short about Bounce that featured mm-hmm. some dancers and especially some of the young Black gay men who've developed a really distinctive dance style that has incorporated. Like, if you think about like shaking, which includes twerking, so part yeah. of shaking, there's really like very, um, very gendered styles, right? Mm-hmm. Where um, you know, women's styles tend to be more like the twerking and more of, you know, buttocks focused type styles of dance, which have West African roots. Um, And men's styles tend to be more shoulder work and more footwork. Yeah, Um, (laughs) you got it. You got it. Um, There's this group of of especially queer men who like bring these things together, right? Who like twerk like the best of them are some of the most desired dancers that rappers will bring on tour. You know, one of Big Frida's, if you watch, especially the earlier seasons, her male dancer was, I told him he was my favorite, but he was like (laughs) such a good dancer. So, um, So they were in this documentary and then this is all legal that Beyonce's people got permission to use some of that footage in the formation video. The problem is they got permission from the person who owned that footage Mm -hmm. and the artists, the dancers and artists included had given their permission to be only in that documentary, right? Like they didn't give permission for it to be used in other contexts. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, they're Beyonce fans, right? Like who wouldn't be thrilled to be featured in a Beyonce video? Like all they had to do was say, you know, this is a dancer that was included or, hey, do you mind if we use this footage in this video? And they would have been thrilled, yeah, thrilled, right? But the fact is, it when you have all this sort of material by Black queer creators and you're not acknowledging that, 
there's an erasure that comes with that, right? So it's not just the like people want to get the money. I mean, that helps, right? <laughs> but yeah. it's also just about acknowledging like where some of these cultural aspects are coming from. And you're already talking about marginalized community. To have that erasure is just a really painful, a really painful experience for them. So that's where the impetus for that article came from. Like still love Beyonce. Right. But we can't like worship someone without talking about you know, the ways in which there's been some harm there. And I think other artists do it as well, where it is selectiveness with queer culture um, that I'll hear a song and I'll hear, yes, queen, or I'll hear you better work or, or something like that that is incorporated in their music. But then that's it. That That's legit with no kind of, you know, this comes from the queer culture. And especially um, I had my problems and I love drag race. I really do. Um, but how they kind of race ballroom culture of New York for a long time, you know, tens across the board and which because of drag race and how big it is, it's now become into music and it's become like normal vernacular for people. Um, and I always try to tell people, I'm like, that comes from the ballroom scene, the ballroom in New York City, ballroom scene. And I know you you kind of talked about that before um, with the ballroom and, and really just a lot of our now normal words come from that scene as well. And they have a, also a very interesting music as well that they use for ballroom culture. So can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that just gets on my nerves <laughs> is when this is where a lot of scholarship comes from right people have a tendency to do something that gets on your nerves so you set out to, <laughs> to, to change the conversation um when we talk about queer rap artists there's been a tendency to lump them all together as like mm -hmm. you know they're already anomalies is how it how this you know idea goes and so they must have something all to do with each other right and what that does is it just completely flattens all the diversity of of queer and trans rappers, right? They are working from different regional styles, you know, approaching different topics, different musical style, all this stuff, right? So I was interested, though, that um, especially in sort of the the early I mean, early two thousand mid two thousand where are we now twenty tens <laughs> I don't know twenty tens I guess you have a group of openly queer and trans black rappers working in and around New York City who do have sort of shared approaches in their music, not because they're just because they're queer, but because they're drawing on ballroom culture in their music. And they're kind of using ballroom as an important touchstone, an important signifier of Black queer identity that they're then expressing through hip hop. And so you see them using some of the visual images, especially some of the competitive dance styles, right, mm -hmm. in their music videos. Um, of it all. Yes. And a lot of ballroom, um, the, 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 the competition categories, the gender competition categories have their own particular soundtracks, right? They yeah. have different styles that, that, sort of articulate what the categories are. Um, and so you see rappers engaging with those musical styles as well, and especially drawing on house music, mm -hmm. which is, you know, like if you had to pick one sound 
to be really indicative of of black queer cultures like house music would probably <laughs> probably be it right so they're drawing on these musical styles and of course lyrically they're engaging with you know some of that slang that you pointed out that's particular mm -hmm. originates in those communities you know about slaying right mm -hmm. reading, reading um, things right. like that and well, they're engaging yeah. with that so we're seeing this but i think that hip-hop audiences that don't have that cultural knowledge about ballroom are like they don't have a context for it right they're not they understand it as hip-hop but not the sort of um mm -hmm. other reference points that are being engaged in that music and so that's something that i'm really interested in is is how they're combining these things um and it's not that they're taking two things that are incompatible right like hip-hop and ballroom, I think already have a lot of overlap. They're just yeah. making that overlap really apparent, like really clear, I think. And in my last question, how do we go, um, or how did we actually kind of transfer, and not really the word isn't transfer, but from queer artists like Zebra Cats or even my, I, I call her sometimes problematic queen, Azalea Banks. How do I know that's where you were going? Right, you knew where I was going. You knew where I was going. Um, how do we go from those to now Lil Nas X, where he is very mainstream and very open about being a member of LGBTQ? I know. First of all, I love Lil Nas X. I mean, he makes me feel old, but like in a good way. <laughs> You know, or I just I don't know that I could have imagined as, you know, a young queer kid that we would be hearing Lil Nas X singing about like pretty explicit things <laughs> on the radio. So that's kind of um, amazing. I will say, though, that um, it bothers me when media outlets position him as just coming out of nowhere mm. um, because as we've already even gotten an idea from this conversation there's a long history of not mm. only queer involvement in hip-hop but there's a longer lineage of black queer musicians in the u.s and he i think is very much a part of that lineage mm -hmm. i think his visibility has made it so that we don't always make those connections immediately and yeah. i will say i'm a little bit i want to say like concerned disappointed he has a lot of amazing features on his first full-length album mm -hmm. he missed a really good opportunity to collaborate with other queer rappers and queer hip-hop artists and so I'm a little worried, like the thing to, to bring it back full circle when we talk about Nicki Minaj and the strategies that she was engaging with and how, you know, mm -hmm. she didn't always, she wasn't the most collaborative artist in a lot of ways. I'm a little concerned that we're going to see that with Lil Nas X, that, you know, he's like the gay rapper and kind mm -hmm. of overshadow all these lots of other artists who've been doing this work, but not, haven't had the visibility yet that he is, he's had. So I'm like, I'm excited about it. It's a little, I have a little bit of concern about what that means for other rappers yeah and that that kind of goes into i have a question that now is no longer questioned but um it's answered but now i have a follow-up question so at first i was gonna just ask in general are you seeing more representation of queer artists within the music field and i think the answer to that is yes but i think the what we have just been discussing is the fact that um how they are represented and how they are credited for their um for their work and their art is now becoming the the topic of discussion and the issue that we are seeing. Um, and so I think that's, that's something to digest and for everyone who's listening to kind of think about 
when you talk about representation and diversity and inclusion, like who are you including? How are you including them? How are you representing them? Like, and are you trying to just lump all of all of the diverse people into one category? Are you actually like honoring everyone for their very specific uh, diverse backgrounds? Um, and yeah, that's that's a very. I think that's where we're going. I think now that like DEI is a very blanketed like general idea and now we're going no 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 there's more layers to this and there is there's so many different ways we can take this and run with it and just like you said it's not one thing it's not one committee it's not one one person who you appoint your dei you know head it is a a system and it's a like it's programs and other things that you have to that have to be implemented and put into place for anything to actually get done um, and so I thank you for the for the work you're doing and the things that you're the discussions you are bringing about um, because this is the work that is going to turn into the things that we need to see in order to actually if we want to talk equity then this is this is the work to get there so I I really appreciate it thank you well thank you but it's really you know you all your generation you're doing this work and. You know, I'm sorry that so much of it has fallen on you all, but, you know, and I, I, I see initiatives like this and I get so excited because I just want folks to have an easier, I feel like the goal should be everyone coming after us should have an easier time than we did, right? Absolutely. So I feel like that's the goal. One thing, if I can add one more thing about Lil Nas X though, I know what I said was kind of just critical about him, but I also don't think it's his responsibility to make everything okay for for queer youth and black queer youth in particular, right? And I think that that's not just for the artists we're talking about, but anyone involved in this work is that it can't just be these superstars or this one person or whatever, that when we say multifaceted approach, it also means, you know, more of us, like a sense of community doing the work. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank yes, you. Mom. Where can we where can we find you? Where can people find all of your work and all the things that you're currently working on that are coming out soon? Like, let us know where we can find you. Yeah, well, I am on Twitter. <laughs> no, I don't have a regret saying that. Very active on Twitter. We're gonna follow you right now. Follow you right now. <laughs> At Lauren Care on Twitter, um, I will post about, you know, the book that I'm working on. I hope it's going to be out fall 2022. Um, I can't wait for it to be out, but, you know, we got to make sure it's, we're happy with what's going out. Um, and my articles, uh, I do, you know what, I do have a humanities com um, commons account, but I have not updated in a while, but um, I do have some articles out that people can read and I'm always happy to send PDFs because, you know, access, access, access. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, thank you so much uh, for being here with us. We have learned so much. This uh, discussion has been so enriching. I can't imagine what it was like taking an actual class with you. So, Michael, I'm jealous. Um, I know, right? Thank you so much for sharing just like your your knowledge with us and um, uh, all the things that you're doing. So, everyone, go check. Make sure to go uh, check Dr. Care out um, and look at all the amazing things that she is currently doing and will do later on. And we really hope you enjoyed the episode. Take everything digested. Think about how you think about these things. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.